study in 1 Corinthians 10 this week and studying communion and how it's so intimate. Lord, it's much more than an external sacrament, much more than a representation. Lord, it's such intimacy with you as we just are united with Christ. And think of just a Spurgeon sermon I read there that he just said, that he's experienced intimacy with you on a regular basis, just as if he was walking face to face with you, and that that's something that can be reached by believers and something you desire for us, God. And I just pray you would take us there, Lord. Lord, we just know we've got many distractions in our life and many things that uh, just are competing for that, their rival thrones. And Lord, would you just take us deeper and deeper in intimacy with you, Lord, even as we just strive to know you more, God. Lord, even uh, as we learn and have instruction, Lord, we just pray that it wouldn't just be head knowledge, but Lord, just work it into our heart, Lord. Just uh, equip us to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Tam. <clears throat> well, that was a fun uh, breakout session. I don't, I, ours was. Ours was kind of a small group tonight, so we got with Aaron's group, and uh, if uh, you guys are ever like that, feel free to do that as well. Um, I have a different copy than you guys, so someone at the, uh, where we left off last week and want to shout out the page number there, page 11. Geez, Stephanie. <laughs> oh, whatever. Um, but we're going to do a little bit of review. And so you can flip back a little bit. Uh, if you don't have to look at your notes to answer this, uh, then don't. But we're looking at how to understand your Bible and how to study to teach the Bible. So uh, does anybody remember what hermeneutics is? Hermeneutics. Right, the uh, study of how to study the Bible or the science and art of biblical interpretation. Who remembers the four-fold approach and methodology of our hermeneutics? Without looking, can you just kind of remember them? What's the L? Literal or plain, okay? And then the historic and then the grammatical and contextual, all right? That's our approach to study, studying the scriptures. Um, what was the, uh, for literary approach, literal approach, what was the uh, reformer's Latin phrase that they'd say? So, okay, so that was a different study, sola scriptura, but the reformers would also use the phrase Census literalis. And what did that speak about? Was that literal or was it, it sounds like literal, literary, all right? The literary approach to the scripture. So we looked at that last week. Historical, remember that uh, the Bible seeks to ask two, uh, Bible study seeks to answer two questions in the historical aspect of hermeneutics, and it was what? 
What did it mean then? Very important. Very important. We always want to just go to number two. All right. And I was reading again. Uh, I'm going to quote it a lot, but um, how to how to read your Bible for all it's worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And uh, I mean, they just hammered that, hammered that, hammered that. What did it mean then? And what does it mean now? Uh, grammatical. The Bible is written in human language, not angel language, not a mystery language. Uh, and such can only be rightly understood when the meaning of all the words are known, which includes their definitions, their tenses, and their relationship to one another in sentences and paragraphs. Uh, in the context, there's two different types of context that we look at. Do you guys remember? As far as uh, <clears throat> historical context and then biblical context, okay? So uh, there's historical context. You look at everything that was going on at that time, political, um, customs, all of that stuff. And then in the biblical context, you want to look at the context that's written in amongst the, uh, the grammar, uh, the literature, uh, the verses in front of it, verses behind it, and then the whole of the book in the meta narrative. Uh, context is fill in the blank. King. Context is king. Um, your notes there said, understanding the Bible properly requires that we clear our minds of all ideas, opinions, and systems of our own day and attempt to put ourselves into the times and surroundings of the apostles and prophets who wrote. Um, let's take a time. We're going to move on. What is what J.I. Packer calls evangelical cigarettes? Taking a verse out of context, all right? I strip a verse of its context, take a drag on it. It makes me feel good, and I use it in a way that the Bible never meant it to be used, all right? Um, what is exegesis besides a really funny skin condition? No, that's eczema. Uh, Linzorama, what was that? The drawing out of the scriptures. Good job. Exegesis means to draw out of the scriptures. And that's what we want to do as we study. It's the application of the hermeneutical principles that we just talked about uh, in order to understand and explain it, okay? Um, what is eisegesis? To read into the text. Is that something we want to do? No, we want to avoid that at all costs. Let me just quote something I read today. We also tend to think that our understanding is the same thing as the Holy Spirit's or human author's intent. However, we invariably bring to the text all that we are with all of our experience, culture, and prior understandings of words and ideas. Sometimes what we bring to the text unintentionally, to be sure, leads us astray or else causes us to read all kinds of foreign ideas into the text. Um, is eisegesis always bad cultic stuff that we read into the text, or fleshly stuff? What did Kevin have a good word for us last week? Remember? Sometimes it's good principles, biblical stuff, it's just not what that verse says, okay? 
What is exposition? Exposition. All right. It's the actual process of proclaiming it. Proclaiming it and applying it. What's inductive Bible study? Try not to look at your notes. What's an inductive Bible study? Okay, look at your notes. <laughs> a person begins with a what? A specific text. Will Lander. That's demonic. I'm kidding. <laughs> you have the next answer, okay? A person begins with a text, all right, and basically says, I bow my knee to the text, okay? Um, and so uh, you go to the text, you begin with a biblical text, and uh, put the text together to form the general principle, and um, you allow the Bible to speak for itself in its own spirit-inspired truth without preconceived ideas and notions. What's a deductive Bible study? You begin with a subject, all right, uh, like Mother's Day or something, and then you go and you try to pull out all these texts to support that, but what's the danger? It could be taking out of context. It could not apply to that. It could be you're starting with your preconceived ideas and notions uh, rather, and can you do a deductive Bible study well and to the glory of God and rightly? Yeah, you can, but you want to make sure it's the text that is the scaffolding that provides the outline for what you're saying rather than your presuppositions. Nobody knows what you just meant. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm teasing. Wow, good job. What was the word last week I couldn't get? It was exposition, wasn't it? Not ex good job. Simply exegete the text. That's what you said. Probably has a root phrase there in there somewhere. As we learned, Leandra is the vocab expert here. Come on, Leandra, bust it out. Let's <laughs> By the way, extra credit for Leandra for sending us her blog this week. It was awesome. Good job. Um, yes. Yep, okay. So... Um, Great, great job, you guys. Uh, for the sake of time, we're going to move on um, to the practice of Bible study. Um, partly here, a six-step process from Artaxerdia, but other things added as well. Qualifications for interpreting the Bible. Uh, first of all, preparation. Preparation, number one, you need to be born again. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Secondly, a spirit-controlled life. Personal holiness is the most important ingredient a person brings to Bible study. Sin will quench the Holy Spirit, without whose illumination the understanding of spiritual truth is impaired. Uh, Milne, uh, let's see if I, yeah, Milne, um, I wrote down who, exactly this guy is, but it's not on my notes right here. Um, theologian, Scotland. Uh, what we understand of God's truth is related less to the capacity of our brains than the extent of our obedience. Okay? 
What we understand of God's truth is related less to the capacity of our brains than the extent of our obedience. And you'll see that in your core groups and your home groups and in church. And people be like, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. You get it more than you know. You just don't want to obey. All right? You don't want to get it because getting it means a changed life. It means repentance. It means confessing sin. Um, Cost of discipleship book. All right? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, what does he say? Belief. Say it, Kev. You read it like 10 times to us. Thank you, Aaron. Those who believe, obey. And those who obey, believe. Um, so it's more, a, it's a heart issue is what's going on here. Um, and you, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, we just studied this uh, I don't know, 13 weeks ago or something like that as we were reading through about uh, the natural man not understanding the mystery and the deep things of God. Um, third thing in our Bible study is a prayerful attitude, a prayerful attitude. Uh, Psalm 119, known as the longest book of the Bible, or, I'm sorry, longest chapter in the Bible, follows the Hebrew alphabet as you're reading through in kind of an acrostic um, pattern. And the writer continually asks God to teach him as the spirit is the one who transformed the writer. And so Psalm 119.12 says, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. This is a prayer that, uh, that I have, you know, as I'm prepping for a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or whatever. Um, teach us, Lord, teach me. Uh, Psalm 119.18, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Verse 26, I've declared my ways and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. So there's this repeated prayer of teach me, make me understand. Verses 33 through 44, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. So teach me, give me understanding, and I'll observe it with my whole heart. Uh, Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Verse 64, the earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. 119.68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Verse 73, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding. So the author is constantly begging God to teach him and illuminate his mind. So before you open the Bible, personal holiness is the most important ingredient a person has in preaching the word. The Holy Spirit is the resident teacher of truth. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us and to change us. And if we're practicing sin, that's quenched. Tam. Uh, I don't have it memorized. What? So it's so it'll be like a. All who trust in the Lord are okay, uh, and so it goes off of that, and then it goes. I want to go Greek and alpha beta, but I'm not a Hebrew scholar. So, but so it starts off with A, goes off of that. B goes off of that. Well, there's more than just. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, right. There's more than just the. Yeah. Um. So this personal holiness and repeated prayer isn't so much a step as it is 
an attitude and a life that we carry out throughout studying. Study should begin and end in an attitude of praying, confessing sins and responding to the truths you discover immediately. If you don't, you learn to take in truth without responding to the truth and your life will live out contradictory to the truth. Uh, so many times as I'm studying, just it has to begin with the preacher first before he can go out and I just find myself, I'm glad I've got carpet in my office because I hit the deck all the time, just confessing to the Lord where I've fallen short in the text that I'm studying. Kind of that inductive approach, I bow my knee to the scripture. Um, do not divorce Bible study from the way you live. Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart write this. In fact, we are convinced that the single most serious problem people have with the Bible is not with a lack of understanding, but with the fact that they understand most things too well. For example, with such a text as do everything without grumbling or arguing, Philippians 2.14, the problem is not understanding it, but obeying it, putting it into practice. Uh, fourthly, a proper attitude towards the scriptures, having a reverent heart for the word. Uh, the word of God is a holy and sacred thing. Treat it with awe and respect. Protect its purity and never knowingly violate its sanctity. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.15 uh, to Timothy there, from childhood, you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Um, Psalm 119, 11 says, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verses 14 through 16, I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts, contemplate your ways, delighting myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So, there's this reverence for the scriptures, delighting in the statutes. Uh, open my eyes, verse 18, that I may see wondrous things from your law. Verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Verse 46, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. So there's just this reverent heart for the word of God. Uh, a beetle is uh, more than a British rock star. <laughs> it's a Scottish Presbyterian uh, part of a church flow, church service, who would, uh, in the middle of the service, almost like the bride coming down during the wedding, uh, everyone would stand and he would bring the scriptures up and set them on the pulpit and then sit down and everybody would sit down. But there was a reverence for the word of God. Um, when you understand inspiration and inerrancy, but don't want to take the time to prepare a study the way that we've been taught in this study, uh, there's inconsistencies. Art Azurdi would advise his students, you are a waiter, not a chef. Get the meal to the table and try not to mess it up. Good word. Uh, you are not a success when people talk about how funny you are. You are success when you rightly divide the word and people can understand it. So if you're like me and you kind of have a personality, um, you hear a lot like, that was great. And I talk about the joke all week. And it's like, man, it's not about the joke. We don't want guys. We don't even want guys. I think Chad sent a blog out a little while ago where guys were, you know, saying, um, oh, yeah, that's that's good. That's good word, Rory. But uh, but just shut up and get to the next joke, or whatever, you know, and uh, we don't want that to be what the focus is. We want the word of God to be rightly divided so people can understand it and be changed by it. John Calvin said, I never knowingly mishandle the text. 
Uh, Fifthly, a priority for personal study time. The student of the scripture must possess a willingness to apply the discovered principles of the text to his or her own life first. Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinance in Israel. So first it's a heart preparation and applying it uh, to the life first and then teaching the statutes in Israel. First <clears throat> um, Timothy 4.16, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Teachers lead with two tools, your Bible and your life. If what you teach and how you live are two different things, people will not follow. Living with the discontinuity makes me humble because I know how far I've fallen. As I'm studying to learn the word for my own life, I want to experience Christ's likeness. So as you study the word, you're constantly shown how fall, you fall short. And, uh, and so it's good, it's humbling to... Uh, to confess that and allow the Holy Spirit to change you. Uh, I think of what Paul tells Timothy to uh, be diligent to study, uh, to be diligent to study and rightly divide the word of truth. Sixth, a proper understanding of the goal of scripture. Second Timothy 3, 15 through 17, we'll read it in a second. The intended goal of the scriptures themselves is not just that we know but that we grow. No is indispensable to grow, but if you don't grow, for some reason it says groan there, <laughs> maybe that's it too, uh, it's not enough to know. And uh, that passage that we studied so much a few weeks ago about the scriptures in verse 16, they're inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the purpose of the Bible is life change, not just to make your head fat. Bible study asks what and so what. And so we might get a ton of information, a ton of history, a ton of the original language, a ton of, as we've uh, done our hermeneutic principles, We've got the what down, and then there's the exegesis, the application. So what? What does he mean? What is he saying? So what? What does this mean for my life? What does this have to do with our life? Takes humility. Readers of the Bible have struggled with determining portions of the scripture for thousands of years. Some have good insights. No interpreter is infallible, only the word of God is. It takes willingness to yield to the application of the scriptures. It takes a dependence on the Holy Spirit. There's no private interpretation. Sin and unwillingness to yield quench the Holy Spirit's insight. As we come to the text, we observe, there's observation. What does this book and passage say? Observation is discovery and exploring. Interpretation is digesting and explaining. 
And the observation is literary analysis. And this is a little bit of review uh, going back to uh, our hermeneutics and uh, literary. What style of writing am I studying? Is this a parable, a narrative, an epistle, poetry, apocalyptic, etc.? Looked at that last week. Each biblical writing took on the nature of a specific literary form, narrative, poetry, prophecy, letters, proverbs, drama, law, wisdom, literature, apocalyptic, visions, parables, and discourse. If we are not aware of these literary forms, we may misinterpret statements in those sections. Remember, each particular genre will have a certain approach and a different way of interpreting. I highly recommend uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas uh, Stewart's book here. Because it goes through, like say you're going to start studying the Psalms, or say you're going to study Revelation, it goes through on how to interpret, uh, and, and it goes through a lot of what we've been looking at, but it helps you with that genre. Um, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Yeah. <clears throat> um, let's go down to number one there. Sometimes the the numbers get off there. (laughs) One and one. Each biblical writing was understood by its initial readers in accord with the basic principles of logic and communication. Whatever type of literature we approach, whether it's newspaper, drama, or autobiography, we follow the normal principles of communication. We usually give a writer the benefit of the doubt and do not look for him to be contradicting himself. So ask these six questions. What did the words convey in the grammar of the, uh, to the original readers or of the original readers? What was being conveyed by those words to the initial readers? How did the cultural setting influence and affect what was written? What is the meaning of the words in their context? What literary form is the material written and how does that affect what is said? And how do the principles of logic and normal communication affect the meaning? So uh, this is a little bit of review, but we're looking at how to prepare a Bible study. And so this all falls under like observation um, and uh, our hermeneutics here in our exegesis. Uh, E.W. Bollinger grouped the Bible's figures of speech into more than 200 categories, giving 8,000 illustrations from the scriptures. If we say it is raining hard, we are using a normal plain statement. Bit, if we say (laughs) it is raining cats and dogs, we have used a sentence that means the same thing, but in a more unusual or colorful way. So there's figures of speech in the scriptures. Why use figures of speech? Figures of speech add color or vividness. They attract attention. They make abstract intellectual ideas more concrete. They aid in retention and abbreviate an idea. And they encourage reflection. Sometimes a figure of speech is not recognized by the reader as such. And so the statement is misunderstood. So how do you know if an expression is figurative or literal? Generally, An expression is figurative when it is out of character with the subject discussed or is contrary to fact, experience, or observation. If we hear sports announcers say, the Falcons beat the Lions, we know he is speaking of two sports teams 
not actual birds and cats fighting. Guidelines here in noting figurative language. Always take a passage in its literal sense unless there is a good reason for doing otherwise. For example, when John wrote that 144,000 would be sealed with 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, there is no reason not to take those numbers in their normal literal sense. In the following verse, John referred to the lamb, clearly a reference to Jesus Christ, not an animal, as indicated by John 1.29, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think that's John 1.29. The figurative sense, number two, is intended if the literal would involve an impossibility. The Lord told Jeremiah that he had made him an iron pillar and a bronze wall. Jeremiah 1.18. John wrote that Jesus held seven stars in his right hand. The Lord does not have wings, Psalm 157.1, nor, nor does the earth have ears. Listen, O earth. Micah 1, 2. Number three, the figurative is intended if the literal meaning is an absurdity, as in trees clapping their hands. Isaiah 55, verse 12. Number four, take the figurative sense if the literal would demand immoral action. It would be cannibalistic to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood. He obviously was speaking figuratively. Number five, note whether a figurative expression is followed by an explanatory literal statement. Those who fall asleep in 2 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 15 are then spoken of as those who have died. When Paul wrote that the Ephesians were dead, he did not mean that they were physically dead. He immediately explained that they were dead in transgressions and sins. Sometimes a figure is marked by a qualifying adjective. Sorry, that didn't get bold in there. By the way, if anyone has the gift of editing, I would love for that to be used. Sometimes it's just reading over my notes again and you find it. <laughs> uh, so sometimes a figure is marked by qualifying adjective. Heavenly Father, the true bread, living stone. Sometimes a prepositional phrase hints that the preceding noun is not to be understood literally. The sword of the spirit, Ephesians 6, 17, the phrase of the spirit shows that the sword is to be understood figuratively, not literally. A similar phrase, the good fight of faith. Figurative versus literal. We should not suggest that figurative language does not convey literal truth. Figurative speech is a picturesque, out of the ordinary way of presenting literal facts that might otherwise be stated in a normal, plain, ordinary way. Perhaps it's not better, perhaps it is better not to speak of figurative versus literal interpretation, but of ordinary literal versus figurative literal interpretation. Background study using a Bible introduction recreates the historical setting of the book being studied. Good commentaries will also provide some of this information. Uh, and so we're, we're back here, uh, kind of moving along out of this figurative thing, and we're looking at, uh, as we're studying, to prepare a Bible study. So you might just make a mark there. Some of the outline numbers are a little off. 
So background study, you can, you can actually buy Bible introduction books or commentaries and some study Bibles have really good book introductions that'll help explain a lot of this stuff. Uh, background information. Um, you want to look at who is the author, which is at the end of your packet today. Uh, we'll read through that at the end. Uh, what compelled him to write this book? Does he have a specific purpose? Um, Hebrews, we just went through it on Wednesday night. Uh, and so you guys probably have a fresh idea of why the author wrote Hebrews and why there's so many warning statements. Can anybody tell me why there's so many warning statements about don't drift away, don't neglect the faith? So just getting a background, it'll help you understand. Um, and we, we looked at this last week, reasons why books, let's see, did we? I think we looked at this last week. Uh, but Jude 3, ver, verse 3, there's only one chapter. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So uh, this author was going to write about the common salvation, but then he realized, man, we need to, you need to be written about contending earnestly uh, for the faith. Um, was there a problem the author intended to solve when he wrote this book? Where was the author when he wrote the book? To whom was he writing and what were the cultural distinctives? Remember when Paul wrote Romans, he was in Corinth and we know what Corinth was like from our Sunday morning studies. And so when you read Romans 1 about all these horrible, sinful acts, you know, Paul was right there in the thick of it, practically looking out his window, able to just have all these examples uh, coming to his mind. Um, you know, when we read something about meat sacrifice to idols, like we have the last few weeks on Sunday mornings, we want to know the background of why it was even a big deal or where the liberty would be there in that. What are the key themes of the book? As you begin your Bible study, you want to have immersion in the text, having immersed yourself in the text. Read through the entire book that you're teaching in one sitting and do that on several different occasions. Do this to feel the pulse of the author. I think H.A. Ironside uh, would read through a book 73 times uh, before he would even teach it. Um, a great tool is to take your computer, uh, and the ESV Study Bible is the only one I found that'll do this for you, but you can get the text so that there's no chapter breaks or verses, and you can just read through it the flow that it would have been written. You can do that a few times. And... Um, you'll start to begin to see the big ideas for yourself without the outlines having been put in there by the publisher of your Bible. Um, you'll begin to see how the author finishes one argument and then starts another argument. A great thing is to read it out loud as it was designed to be heard. Make an outline of the book, dividing it into its major divisions Try to do that on your own as you're reading through without verses or chapters or paragraph titles. Compare this outline with other outlines 
like what's found in the Bible introductions and good commentaries or your study Bible. As you're studying the book, list the major themes. What are some major themes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians? Carnality. Idolatry. Sexual immorality. Unity. Yep, unity or sectarianism, which would be the opposite of unity. Good. <laughs> that's pretty, I mean, that's about what we've got covered. Um, so major themes that are in the book. List the repeated phrases. List what appears to be preeminent verses. List any names that are used to speak of God, Christ, or the Holy Spirit. List any of the attributes of God which are mentioned. List any prominent doctrines that are mentioned. List any principles for Christian living that emerge from the text. Ask as many questions of the text as possible. Ronald Allen was a Western seminary professor who would tell his students, go read the four chapters of Ruth this weekend, come back with a hundred questions. And they were like, what? Oh, no way we're going to find a hundred questions. So they'd come back with a hundred questions. And then the next weekend, he'd send them out again, read the book of Ruth and come back with a hundred more questions. So write down as many questions from the text as possible. Note any other observations, promises, warnings, encouragements, commands. You get into interpretation. What does this passage mean by what it says? What did it mean to the original writer and what is it see, saying now? What do the words mean in English? So you're going to want to have in your Bible study an English dictionary. Um, I just, you can go to uh, webster's.com or you can download WordWeb. I use that for years. And when I highlight a word on my screen, I'd hit Control-Alt-W and it would come up like that. And I'd use that a ton for just finding out what it means in English or an English theological dictionary, and there's an example of it. Uh, look at number two there. What do the words mean in their original form? Uh, you can use a Greek-English interlinearity to find particular words in context. Um, there's also Bible programs we're going to talk in, about in a little bit that will help with that. Uh, look at an analytical Greek lexicon to find the root word. Uh, the Greek Theological Dictionary, there's examples of some that you could purchase there. Number three, what does this word mean in this particular book? Each writer will use a word in different ways. In the rest of scripture, how is it used? Uh, a couple of you know, English concordance or Greek concordances. Uh, number four, what insights can be gleaned from the verbs? Uh, an example, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples. That's the main verb. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And then you have par participles, which is how. How do we make disciples? Baptizing them, that's not the main verb, that's a participle. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We studied that in our Ephesians 5 passage last week about marriage. And, uh, and it says, um, don't be drunk with wine, 
but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the main verb. How? How do I know someone's filled with the Spirit? And it goes on uh, uh, singing to one another, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, yielding to one another in love, making our melody in our heart to the Lord. Um, We looked at all that last week. Um, Analytical Greek lexicons determines the tense, mood, person, Greek grammar, what insights, number five there, can be gleaned from the sentence structure, define subject, object, verb, pay attention to connective words. Does anyone here love literature class or English and all that? This is like something you're like, I totally dig this. Yeah, we got Leander there. We know it. Um, This is big, okay? Okay. B, pay attention to connective words, all right? This is really big. The word and, okay? And indicates uh, continuation of an idea, but shows a contrast between ideas. Four, gives a reason or explanation for a statement. Because indicates the cause of something. Then, therefore, or therefore, brings a previous idea to a logical conclusion that introduces a purpose or result and if introduces a condition, okay? Uh, so 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So all these connecting phrases, you don't want to just start at at one. You want to go back, go back, go back to the beginning of the thought. Uh, Number six, what are the relationships between this verse or paragraph and what has preceded it and follows it. So read the Bible backwards and forwards because context is king. Paraphrase the passage in your own words or read a paraphrase like the New Living Translation or the J.B. Phillips. Begin to list the principles set forth in the passage. Correlation. How does the rest of scripture illuminate this passage? Matthew 18 is not the only passage on divorce. Actually, Matthew 19, Mark 10, 1 Corinthians 7, Deuteronomy 24, etc. The scripture is its own interpreter. The scripture is its best interpreter. Uh, There's some tools for you there. uh, And you don't have to buy these books anymore. A lot of free Bible study tools online will just have them there all compiled, ready to go uh, to use together. There's some commentaries there. Uh, one-volume commentaries on the entire Bible, commentaries on each testament, like the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and commentaries on the individual books of the Bible, like Expositor's Bible Commentary. Some commentaries are of a more technical nature, dealing with original languages, sentence structures, etc. Others are of a more homiletical nature, emphasis on the big ideas of the text and their applications. A diversity of commentaries can be of significant value for studying a particular passage. Um, So before you even read commentaries, do this other work on your own. 
reading it, know the text, because you could be having a bad commentator and you're like, I mean, he could be totally off and they're out there and they're well-known guys. Um, or they're great guys and they're, they just, on that passage, they're misapplying and misusing the word, the verse. So do all that work on your own. And then finally last come to the commentary. Um, it's cool. Kevin, just share real quick about, uh, like this, uh, this bad boy and what you were telling me in the car about. He's very, there's so many ways that he'd be great to, to read. His name's Daryl L. Bach, a little present from Kevin for me. So you were saying that this commentary is... <laughs> yeah. Does not remember that one? Oh, just how I found it? Yeah, right. Yeah, tell me all about it. Just say what you... Well, I mean, you know, just going on trying to figure out what commentary is, you know... Yeah, so just Google started out as Google, you know, the best, the, the five best commentaries from the book of Luke that are out there. So you... I, looked up several resources and tried to find familiar people that I knew um, that I trusted and so I, I started finding a few and then so that's kind of where I started not that there's other I just the ones that I trust that, that I follow and, they, and then so I start looking at their lists and and um, I you know just uh, cross-referenced each list and came across the top several and this one um, was number one in a few of them, but there was other ones that, that they were more, this is more pastoral, um, written so and, and preachable, so if you're going to be preaching and if you're pastoring, this this helps. There's some that, you know, say you want to, you know, you want to know Greek, have a great understanding of, of Greek and Hebrew to be able to look at this commentary, and there's a lot of that in it, and so if you're really into the original language and you know, so there's just, just different things, I guess, to yeah. look into. And, and they're, they're shorter. That's, this set is 2,100 pages. There's two books. And there's a lot shorter commentaries, too. So you can look for, you know, for uh, easier, you know, easy read. And, you know, um, there's, you know, commentaries on a book that are 200 pages, 300 pages, 700 pages, so on. So there's ones that are bigger pages. Yeah. So, yeah, Googling, what's the best commentary for this book that I'm in and um, I did that recently and found a website that has like this book is is either devotional or pastoral or like linguistic you know and it'll have a check mark onto what it's good for and you're like oh, I'm just I'm just kind of more needing a devotional commentary on the gospel of Luke you know or something uh, those kind of things are very helpful um, as uh, Fee says the quality of your exegetical answers to questions that you have as you're studying will usually depend on the quality of the sources you use. This is the place where you will finally want to consult a good exegetical commentary. But note that from our view, consulting a commentary as essential as this will be at times is the last thing you do. Um, moving along, the Bible is affected and influenced by the cultural environment from which each human writer wrote. Um, application, finally, in our Bible studies here. How should the truth of the passage influence my life, my attitudes, my actions? What are the contemporary implications of this truth? The purpose of observation interpretation is so that we can rightly apply God's word to our life. What is this going to mean in my life, in my family, in my relationship, in my congregation, 
our culture, with my giftings, my ministry. There's a huge difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Uh, as Artaxerxes said, though the scripture has not been written to me, it has been written for me. Now that I understand what the passage means by what it says, and keeping the stated purpose, purpose of the scripture in mind, I must ask myself this practical question. What is the price of ignoring this truth? What if this was stripped out of the Bible? How would my life be different without it? Why do people need to hear this? How will it profit them if they hear it and respond? So you might circle that, underline that, important for our application. Remember, the Bible study in a nutshell is what? What is it saying? What did it say and what's it saying today? And so what? Key questions that help to discover the application. Are there commands to obey, promises to hold to, truths to know, actions to take, sins to forsake, examples to follow, things to avoid, new thoughts about God? Think about categories and spiritual conditions of people. As you're studying, think about the men, women, parents, collegians, employers, singles, couples, neighbors, children, single parents, widows, businessmen, spiritual back, spiritually backslidden, the saved, the unsaved. Not a mock list, but one that represents who you're ministering to in your group. Go back over that list within the last few weeks. Have I spoken to all that's here? If boxes are unchecked, you need to think more about effective application for those that are hearing your Bible study. Um, just a couple of these little phrases here as we're going through. Um, as you're reading, as you're studying, if the first sense makes the best sense, seek no other sense, lest you come up with nonsense. All right, it's an Alistair Begg saying. And then he also always says, and it says there on C, I'm sorry, I'm just jumping through here. Some of it's uh, stuff we've already studied, so... Uh, as we're study, accepting the clear and sensible meanings of the phrases, see there says, in other words, interpret the Bible based on the straightforward sense of the passage. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Um, what's that? Sorry. Oh, it's C on mine. I go back through and... Yeah, I do, big time. <laughs> Once you start getting to 28 pages before you got to head down to the church, it's like, oh man. Uh, getting to know the author of the book towards the end of your packet there, just questions to ask as you start out your study. And then um, a couple resources that I've got that I can just email you guys, um, but you might write it down. Like BibleGateway.com, I use it every week. I have Logos Bible software, but the way the program works I also have another window open on my other screen that's just BibleGateway.com, and it's my search engine for words and stuff. And then you can also have a parallel uh, parallel book open, and I usually have J.B. Phillips open up on there as well for the paraphrase. So BibleGateway.com, I use it every day. Yeah. Where have I heard about that? Um, I use it on BibleGateway.com, so it's on there, yeah. Or you can Google it, and it'll come up on kind of a funky website. You know, it's like from the 90s with flowers and stuff. But BibleGateway.com has it, and I always have it 
parallel up there. Um, eSword is a free download. I used that for years. It's got like the Greek lexicons and stuff. eSword. It's called MySword now. I don't use it anymore. MySword. Uh, free download. There's a guy from Corvallis that teaches classes on how to use it to its fullness. And so if enough people would like, we could have him come and Gilbert Smith, he'll give us a deep how to use. But eSword, free download, just trying it out. You'll figure out how to use it. Uh, Logos Bible Software, I use it, absolutely love it. It's just incredible. Does half your work for you as far as, or does almost all your work as far as grammar and all that stuff is concerned. You're looking at $200 for the base package. Using what? When am I going to use Logos again? Tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yeah, you would like to do that? We're, but we had, um, how'd that work? Right, the Logos one was um, when I did all my verse references up. That's helpful for you guys? You guys like that? Okay, some people don't like it, some people like it. Okay, that's cool. Nikki, you helped me with that, didn't you? I thought you did. Um, also, Mantis Bible software is free. Um, Rob Verdine and Josh Bryant love it. I haven't really gotten into it. Blueletterbible.org is a Calvary Chapel-run website, and it does... Tons of stuff, tons of stuff. It can be your search engine. It can be your Greek and Hebrew lexicon. It can be tons of commentaries on there. It's all free. Blue, um, blueletterbible.org. Is that on there? Oh, cool. I was reading it because I didn't think that you guys had that. Okay. <clears throat> so... There's a lot of um, helpful study tools there, uh, like Kevin did, and what I've just started doing is I Google top commentaries, and I'll find names that I'm familiar with, and you can read reviews on to make sure they're doctrinally sound. They're names that I'm familiar with through teachers that I listen to. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those of you that have Kindles, those of you that have Kindles, you can get cheap commentaries on there. And then it's great because you can cut it out, bring it over into your notes, and it automatically bibliographies it and everything like that. Um, and so, but you get a lot of Calvin and you get a lot of Spurgeon. You get a lot of these guys that are like two bucks for their commentaries and everyone uses them. They're pretty good, pretty good resources. So. Um, or if you have a pastor friend, ask him for their recommend, his recommendations. Um, so there's tons of names out there of guys that are great to read. Uh, there's some good little commentaries to have as you read. And then uh, I've got a whole list of just good pastors to listen to. Um, that's typically what I do at the end of my studying of all this other stuff I've done. I'll listen to um, just some guys and uh, get really good insight from them as well. Of course, the Holy Spirit had stuff for them to say to their church at that time and place that he wouldn't have for it to be said here. And so, 
Who's my favorite out of all these guys? Alistair Begg. There's some Calvary Chapel guys on there that I love, but I love Alistair. He's not a Calvary guy. Um, John Wang was one of my mentors, uh, and he's the director of the Calvary Chapel Bible College now. Rob is my pastor as well from my youth. A lot of these guys are Calvary guys. Other guys like Mark Driscoll, pretty good expositor um, out of Acts 29. John Piper's probably one of my other favorite guys. Um, Bob Caldwell is a friend out of Calvary Boise. He's got a totally different style of teaching. <laughs> uh, if you guys have been to the conference with us. By the way, in like April-ish, remember, I want all of us to go to the Calvary Boise conference together. Start a Bible study. I don't do all this. this is some of this is learning for me that I want to start doing. Like last week, I just started reset, rereading like without the verses and the references and stuff, and writing my own outline. And it was just really good to start doing that again. And you know, some of this is just good reminder for me that I haven't done in a long time, but. Um, I have a great teaching from Alistair Begg on the nature of expository preaching, and he kind of simplifies a lot of this. And it was, uh, one thing that I just remember is um, write yourself clear. So as you go through each verse in your inductive Bible study, you're writing everything that the, the verses that, or the definitions, uh, every cross-reference. This is just the hermeneutic part. This is the exegesis part. For verse 1. What does this verse mean? Is there a therefore? Is there an and, a but, a for, a therefore, whatever? Writing all, just writing, 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 writing. Everything I think of, I, songs, jokes, you know, whatever, you know. Just write myself clear. And not everything's going to be used in it. It's kind of the pick, pick top of the iceberg, you know. I skip a lot as I read it, too, if, if I sense the Holy Spirit's not. So I just write, 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 write. That's the first thing I do. Every verse, I write, write, write. And Logos helps me a lot because it, kind of, it takes what used to take me so much longer with books and with dictionaries open and flip into the page and it's right there. It's like you click on a word and it's there. Um, and then read myself full is how Alistair puts it. So write yourself clear, read yourself full. So commentaries, I also listen myself full. If I'm going on a walk, if I'm going on a road trip, if I'm going on, you know, whatever, if I'm working on something, I listen or I'm reading, 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 tons of commentaries after I've written myself clear, read yourself full. And last but not least, and should be actually the whole time, pray yourself keen. I used to see it was, thought it was pray yourself clean, but it, pray yourself keen because then I listened to it later and, uh, and just aware, pray yourself to be aware of your own heart, what needs to be repented of, what needs to be changed. Um, what's going on in your community, what's going on in the people in the church, the people that are going to be there, and, and Lord, bring the people that need to be here in, in prayer. So that's very simply put, write, read, pray, okay? So the meta narrative of the scripture, I'm going to give you two more quick things, okay? I know you guys got to go. Two things. Number one, the meta narrative of the scripture, context is king. The whole context is the redeemer that's coming to save us, Okay? It's all about Jesus, and in Luke 24, Jesus says that, so everything is pointing to Jesus, okay? Uh, 
in Exodus, God's going to give a shepherd to shepherd Israel as they're leaving Egypt. In Psalm 23, there's a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. This idea of shepherd all throughout. Who is the shepherd? Malachi talks about it. And it's quoted in Matthew when Jesus comes. You, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you're not the least of the nation of this cities in Judah, if you will, um, for out of you will arise a shepherd, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's about Jesus, okay? So remember that as your study. The hero is Jesus. Look for how it's pointing to Jesus, okay? Um, and this is that Bible I was talking about in the children's ministry. You might as well order it for your own collection because, for instance, today, Lainey and I were reading about Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. And at the end of every story today, I'm telling Lainey, one day God will send another prince, a young prince, whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good to forgive the sins of the whole world. So it is a great job. And like Old Testament where you're like, how does this point to Jesus? Go to the children's Bible that's teaching kids how to do it. It's just a great resource. Uh, this is by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And uh, Tim Keller actually kind of was the vision behind it. So, And he does that. We've shown it on the YouTube um, Jesus is the true and better Abraham, the true and better so-and-so. Uh, what was the other thing? Oh, remember when you're studying, don't just go straight to the moral imperatives. What that means is don't just go straight to the stuff that you've got to do. Cause you could come to your Bible study and be like, do this, do this, do this. Husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your husbands. Look first for the redemptive indicatives. It will be in the context of what you're studying. All right. The redemptive indicatives, what God has done for us, how he's redeemed us, that'll lead into action from that, okay? And we see that in the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. That's God's grace. That's God's redemption. You shall love the Lord, your, or you shall uh, have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. And he goes into the Ten Commandments, so... The moral imperatives will always grow out of the redemptive indicatives. Just keep, keep thinking of those words. Cheryl's like, I'm getting those words. I'm getting it down. Okay. So great. Tons of stuff. Chad likened it the other day, like drinking from a fire hydrant. It's like, <sighs> um, I thought it was, I thought it would be um, a little shorter tonight. Sorry about that. But I enjoyed the breakout sessions as well with you guys. We'll shoot out the homework list for next week. I believe next week we're going to be looking at the doctrine of God. Okay. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.